Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Black Mountain College was a pioneering institution in North Carolina, known for its avant-garde experimentation in art, music, dance, and design. The college opened in 1933 and closed in 1957. Yet its short lifespan made a lasting impact on education and art. The school's remarkable history is explored in the exhibition Idea Plus Place, advancing the legacy of Black Mountain College on view at Idrum Art Gallery. The genre-bending ensemble Quartetto Nuevo performs in Atlanta this weekend. We'll hear how the group merges Western classical, Eastern European folk, Latin, and jazz into their music later in the hour. First, in Atlanta, we take pride in the number of gay bars around the city. More than 300 LGBTQ plus bars have played a memorable role in Atlanta's gay community, past and present. During the pandemic, Art Smith, who describes himself as, quote, a longtime card-holding member of the Atlanta gay community, decided to create an archive of all the gay bars throughout the U.S. and the world. The site is called Gay Barchives. Art Smith joins me now via Zoom to talk about this monumental project. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's an honor to be here. Now, you have lived in Atlanta since the 1980s, Please tell us your thoughts about how the LGBTQ plus scene grew and evolved over the last 40 years. Well, I first moved to Atlanta in 1983, and I lived there for about 20 years. I moved away for a while, came back, and then moved away again in 2015. So I do not currently live in Atlanta. 
but I still have many longtime friends and contacts there. And I was actually just there for Atlanta Pride. It was a grand event. It was. It certainly was. And I met and connected with a lot of people in Atlanta who are big, big fans of the gay bars from the past in Atlanta. I spoke with people with the Atlanta History Project and a number of other organizations that are trying to preserve uh, Atlanta's gay history. And from my own personal perspective, I was living in, in Nashville, Tennessee in uh, 1982. And I made a trip to Atlanta for New Year's Eve, 82, 83, because Atlanta had an image at that time of being the San Francisco or New York City of the South. It was a gay Mecca at that time and everybody in the South knew it. So I went there for New Year's Eve with my boyfriend. We had a fabulous time. And before we left Atlanta, we were so excited about the vibrancy of Atlanta's gay community at that time that we made the decision to move there. In one day, we found an apartment, turned on our utilities. I accepted a job offer. Oh, and the wow. following weekend, we moved to Atlanta because of its gay scene. Oh, wow. Now, this is such an enormous project. How did you compile the list of gay bars throughout the world onto this website? It is a very arduous task. You know, as you are well aware, 40 years ago, there was no such thing as the internet. So the records of those bars that existed prior to, say, 2000, exist primarily in either other databases that academic institutions have assembled or in any copies of gay magazines that may have been preserved over the decades. So it takes a lot of sleuthing, a lot of research, a lot of talking to people who have been around for quite a while and gathering those stories and kind of collecting the information piece by piece. Did you have any help? I did. Most of the research and the, the driving force behind the Gay Archives Project is my own. And most of the money that's been spent on any kind of research or equipment or anything I've needed to do has come out of my pocket. But I do have people who have supported me in the project, both financially and by being kind of my feet on the ground in different places. One example in Atlanta is a gentleman by the name of Floyd Taylor, who has been very supportive and then reached out and connected me with a lot of people he knows in the uh, Atlanta gay history scene and in the bar scene there. Art, in what ways has the bar scene been a cornerstone for the LGBTQ plus community? Well, my first experience in the gay bar scene was in the late 70s. By the time I moved to Atlanta in 1983, AIDS had already hit the scene. But it wasn't as big of an impact in cities like Atlanta, where we were kind of removed from the New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles impact of AIDS. But one thing that it did do is the local bar community was essential 
in allowing a community to form. Many of the organizations that you now know as advocates of gay rights or supporters of gay services and causes, most of those were formed as a result of interactions with the gay bars. The gay bars were the places where the meetings were held, where people met each other to join hands in a common cause, where drag queens and local performers did fundraisers to raise money for organizations. One interview that I did last year was with the executive director of Florida Equality. And she told me that there would not have been an Equality Florida had there not been a supportive bar community. So that to me was the first you know, big impact that was recognized by the world from the gay community. Yeah, it was a safe space. It absolutely was. And at that time, it was very important. Prior to that, you know, people like to go back and talk about, you know, 1969 and the Stonewall Inn uprising in New York, but there were actually several uprisings around the country that preceded and predated the Stonewall uprising. There was one at the Black Knight in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There was one at the Black Cat in San Francisco. There was one at the Black Cat in um, Los Angeles and numerous other ones around the country that kind of started to set the tone. But Stonewall is the one that really got the focus and started to really uh, get the message out nationally that we needed to fight for our rights. And again, all of those places that I mentioned were gay safe havens, gay bars or gay cafes that allowed us to meet and to discuss topics and to plan protests or marches or whatever we were going to do. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights speaking with Art Smith, project manager of Gay Archives. What are some of your favorite stories sent to these archives? local or otherwise? Well, one of my favorite stories does come from Atlanta, a woman who is very well known in the gay community there. Her name is Dina Collins, and she was a bar owner in Atlanta for many years. I believe her first bar that she owned was in the Cheshire Bridge, uh, La Vista area, and it was called The Rose. It was primarily a women's bar, and it was very well known. And to this day, I still have people from some of the Atlanta gay bar affinity groups on Facebook or other social media accounts that still talk fondly about that bar. But she went on to expand and to build numerous other bars. She had one called Dina's One Mo Time, which was a more mixed bar, men and women, kind of country western theme and then later evolved into hoedowns and three-legged cowboy. So over a period of 30 or 40 years, she was known by a lot of people in the gay community. But what a lot of people don't know about Nina is that she was a very, very big supporter of taking care of people with HIV and AIDS. And when she had her bar on Cheshire Bridge Road, Dina's One Mo Time, 
you know, in the bar business, you close the bar at 3 a.m., you clean up, straighten up, it's 4 a.m. before you're leaving the bar to go home. Many nights, she would spend the night in the bar. She would sleep there for a few hours so that she could be there at seven or eight o'clock in the morning when people came by that were affected by HIV, maybe thrown out by their family or disowned or lost their jobs or unable to work. And she would provide meals for them. She would provide a safe space for them to hang out. She would provide you know, a shower and beverages or whatever to support that community. And her slogan for that bar was a bar with a sense of community. That is the way the bar scene was in the 1980s in Atlanta. How inspiring. From compiling gay bars into this enormous database, can you estimate how many have closed their doors compared to those still open? Well, that's a little bit of an impossible question to answer because so many of them have changed names over the years. And of course, you're going back in Atlanta history, the first what I would call gay safe space that I was able to identify so far was in the like 1949-1950. So you're going back, you know, 70 years. And in that time, there are many bars that have opened and closed. So far in gay archives, I have documented over 3,000 bars around the country in the U.S. that have existed over time. But there are many, many more than that. A friend of mine, two friends of mine actually, just published a book about Chicago's gay bar scene. It's called Last Call Chicago, and it was written by Rick Carlin and St. Suki Delacroix. And together, they spent a couple of years diligently researching Chicago's bar scene. And in this book that they've just published, they have identified 1,001 LGBT spaces. So they could be cafes or restaurants that were popular with the gay community or bars, but 1,001 in the city of Chicago alone. My goodness. Art, when did you decide to grow the site from Atlanta gay bars to the entire U.S. and then beyond? It was kind of an organic growth. The very first conversations I had that inspired me to look into memories of Atlanta's gay bar scene was with uh, one of the former owners of Backstreet in Atlanta. Her name is Vicki Vera, and she also is very well known in the Atlanta gay community. She and her family owned Backstreet, Weekends, Weekends Warehouse, Lipsticks, Levitas, and a number of other bars in Atlanta that were very well attended by the gay community and very supportive of, of the gay community. She wanted to do something to commemorate the 45th anniversary of the day they opened in 1975. So I started talking to people about Backstreet specifically. And in the course of that conversation, people started to reminisce about other bars. So they would be telling me about their memories of Backstreet. And then they would say, but do you remember before we went to Backstreet earlier in the evening, we would go to the far library or the armory or Bulldogs or the Cove or wherever. So it kind of mushroomed through Atlanta. And then it went beyond that because people would say, well, there was also a Backstreet in Fort Lauderdale. And there was also 
you know, a bar called Bulldog in Chicago or wherever. And it started expanding and expanding. And I just ran with it. I just said, okay, once you know a name or have an idea, you can start to dig this information up. The website not only points people to the history about gay bars and nightlife, but also to various articles and websites on LGBTQ plus history listed by state and country. Why did you want to include links to the overall history as well? Well, the, the, that part of the project, that's the archives page on my website. And that started as a hidden page on the website. So nobody else could see it except me. But I put it there because in the course of my research, when I found these resources, I was at a notebook full of random notes everywhere. And I said, this, every time I go to research a new bar, I have to pull out that notebook and flip through all these pages. Why don't I just put that file on my computer? And so I put it on my website. And after speaking to a number of people and finding out that some of the people I was speaking with who may have been historians or may have been authors or may have been bar owners, they would ask about that information too and say, well, where did you find out about this? And so I just decided to make it a public page I feel like history in general, and our gay history in particular, is something that should be easily accessible to anyone. And Gay Bar Archives is not about making Art Smith the guru of gay bar information. It's about having the information out there and having people be able to share their stories of these different places that they used to frequent. Project Manager Art Smith. More information about Gay Archives is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the genre-defying music of Quartetto Nuevo, amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Last year, an article appeared in The New Yorker by Amanda Petrusich titled, Genre is Disappearing. What Comes Next? An existential question with answers that musicians may find liberating. 
the genre-bending ensemble Quartetto Nuevo merges Western classical, Eastern European folk, Latin, and jazz into their music. In July, the band released its second album. Quartetto Nuevo will perform at two locations in Atlanta on Saturday. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke via Zoom with Damon Sick, the saxophonist and flutist. Here, he explains how he met the other musicians in the group. So the group has been around for about, in this configuration, for about six years. And as you heard in the introduction, we really enjoy playing all these styles of music, classical chamber music, uh, jazz and improvising and world music. And even in a, a large music scene like Los Angeles, um, when you put those parameters in place, it really actually limits the pool of who can actually do that music. And so um, in a sense, we sort of found each other just uh, naturally, you know, when we're looking to do this kind of music that the options aren't as, as large as uh, you might think. And then once we found each other and started playing together, we, we really came up with a sort of synergy and, and said, hey, this is something that really works well. Mm-hmm. And do you each have your area of expertise, like in different genres? You know, not so much. You know, all of us are pretty broad based. We all had at some point uh, conservatory training, you know, went to music schools and conservatories across the U.S. Uh, our percussionist actually uh, in Brazil and then professionally in Los Angeles, you know, we all, I play uh, sub with groups like the Los Angeles Philharmonic or the LA Opera. I'll play with jazz bands and big bands and small groups, and I'll play with, you know, rock groups. And everyone kind of has a similar thing where in a typical week doing freelance music in Los Angeles, one day we'll be doing a rock recording session and then a film scoring session and then playing, um, you know, string quartets at someone's wedding and kind of kind of everything in between. And so uh, it's this real love of all these diverse styles and, you know, everyone in the group can really navigate them uh, at a really high level, which is, is what I love about the group. Yeah, absolutely. Having the different styles and playing different concerts and venues and stuff probably helped with the making of this album and how unique it is from song to song. Yeah, for sure. So it's, you know, on the album, there's a couple of pieces that that you would categorize as you know purely a classical chamber music song but even those have a little world music influence so we have a a piece by uh, Argentinian composer Astor Piazzolla on there and it's a tango so yes it's a classical chamber music piece but it has the South American bent and then um there's another piece by uh, uh, American fiddler, Mark O'Connor, who he wrote for his uh, trio that we did our arrangement for the group. And then there's uh, jazz pieces on there and then a, a good number of originals where we get to kind of write in all these styles into our own compositions. Mm-hmm. For the tango piece uh, that you mentioned, was that the Giselle? Okay. Yeah. Does that translate to what to say? Uh, Yes. So um, sort of it, it's, this is a, there's a great story. So that one was actually written by the, the Jesus okay was actually a composition by our guitarist, Kenton Youngstrom. And Kenton uh, wrote this piece a, a few years back. And when he wrote it, he was played it for a friend of his and the friend said, Oh, that really sounds like a Chick Corea composition. And it definitely has it. And so the, the friend said, well, you should call it Portugal because Chick Corea has a famous composition called Spain. 
and Kenton originally titled it Say What, which is okay, but when Felipe joined in and said, well, you know what, it sounds a lot better in Portuguese. And so, Gizer OK is Portuguese for Say What? Oh, very interesting. Just like a different inflection. Yeah. a song titled Appalachian Waltz and it's a slower instrumental one with a little bit of hint of bluegrass and I don't know if my ears were deceiving me but some like Celtic influences I kind of felt that way. Yeah I could see that for sure. So that's the piece that uh, is a composition of Mark O'Connor that our cellist Jacob Zichelli arranged for the band and uh, a couple years ago we had we were having a talk for the band that most of our music when we were doing world music was definitely out of the country. So we were doing South American music and Eastern European and, and all these kinds of things. And Jacob and I were talking, said, you know, we need to focus a little bit too more on sort of the, the regional differences of America. And so he brought in this piece, which is one of his favorites. Um, the Mark O'Connor is a, is a fiddling legend. Um, and he's actually, I first heard him when I was very young, uh, in Seattle. He grew up in Seattle before he moved to Nashville where he's been for, for a long time. And he comes out of the American fiddling tradition. And a few years back, uh, he had a collaboration with the cellist Yo-Yo Ma and the bassist Edgar, Edgar Meyer. And they put together this album. And this was one of the, the tracks on that album that really resonated with people. And it's definitely a, a sort of classical approach to it. But you, like you said, you definitely hear these sort of fiddling tradition undertones. And part of that is, you know, there's a, a huge fiddling tradition in, in Irish or Celtic music as well. So you definitely hear that, that come into play. love the the version that Jacob put together um, the melody gets passed around and you know who's who has the lead and who has the supporting role is constantly kind of changing on the track you get to hear our percussionist explore some other instruments he's not normally playing he, his primary instruments in the group are cajon which is uh, an Afro-Peruvian instrument and a pandero which is a little bit like a tambourine but much more versatile that's a Brazilian instrument and in this track, besides using those, he's using all sorts of um, bird whistles and shakers. And he's he has some homemade instruments that he made during the pandemic out of. Oh, really? Yeah, out of bottle caps and keys and uh, seed pods and all these kind of things. So he really gets to explore some of these sounds on it, which is really fun for us. Yeah, it was beautiful to listen to. And I was trying to guess what instruments were playing in the background. So that's, <laughs> that's interesting that he made these himself. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it's very fun. And part of our, our, uh, our live concert 
is some of the things, especially that he plays, aren't what most people are used to seeing um, at a concert. And so he always has part of his his uh, demonstration is he'll give a little bit of a inside look at the instruments and, and, and really kind of let people see what he's working with, which is really fun. When I was looking through y'all's Instagram, I noticed there was a video where it looked like you were all playing in different rooms. Did you create this album in separate locations? So when we recorded this album, part of the the new model seems to be that you have to have some video that goes along with it. So um, as we're getting ready to to put it out there, we actually hired someone to come and record the in-studio sessions. And so the we did this album all what you would call live in the studio, meaning that we all played everything at the same time as opposed to you know, a lot of rock and roll or those kind of albums, you might just do the drum part first and then add a bass part later. For all these, we all were playing at the same time. But in order to go back and, and make sure everything's how you want it, um, we were each in separate rooms, but all in the same studio. So we all had visual sight lines to each other through glass partitions and those kind of things. Um, but we were all in the same location when we recorded it. Yeah. As mentioned in the introduction, you play the soprano saxophone. And I was noticing how similar that it looks to the clarinet, but they are just completely different instruments. Would you talk about some of those big differences between the two and even like the difference between a soprano saxophone and an alto saxophone? Sure. And this is, yeah, I'm really glad you asked this. This is one is uh, in this group, of course, I play soprano saxophone probably 80 plus percent of the time before the other instruments. And because I play it so much, I always forget forget that it's still a little bit of a novelty. And so I'm thankful at my shows when at intermission, we typically go out and you know meet and greet the audience and, and do autographs and that kind of thing. Someone always asks me, what is that instrument you're playing? And I always, because I always forget to tell people. So yes, it is a soprano saxophone. And the soprano saxophone is very closely related to the, to the clarinet. They're from the same woodwind family. They have a single reed on the mouthpiece and that kind of thing. And the biggest differences are one, the material it's made out of. So soprano saxophone is uh, made out of brass and a clarinet is typically made out of uh, grenadilla wood. So that's the first difference. And the second difference is the shape of the instrument itself. So the clarinet has what's called a cylindrical bore, meaning it's the same size all the way down. So the tube shape on the inside remains the same size all the way from the mouthpiece all the way to the bell. And the bell flares out just a little bit, but if you hold it, a clarinet up, you look down the inside, it, it's the same size all the way down, whereas a saxophone is a conical bore in that it starts small and gets a little bit bigger all the way through. And so the soprano saxophone, I love doing this when we do a, a, an outreach program for students is, you know, you hold the soprano saxophone upside down and it looks like a super tall ice cream cone because it, you know, it gets a little bigger the whole way. And so that shape of the inside really changes it. And the saxophone was invented to play in military bands in the 1800s. And so that brass, the brass material helps it project more. And so main differences is that the, the soprano sax is going to project more, be slightly louder or present than the clarinet. And then it also has a little bit more brilliance where the clarinet typically has a little darker sound mm, going through there. Very interesting. And then the, the, the soprano sax, that straightness is just the tube itself is short enough that you can straighten it out 
whereas the alto and the tenor and the baritone, the next larger instruments in the family, if you straighten them out, they start to look ridiculous because the, um, the length of the tube, you start sticking away so far from you. So that's the main reason why the soprano saxophone goes straight. And they actually do make curved ones, um, but they look, especially for us, I'm, I'm pretty tall. They look like a kind of a children's toy when they're curved. They look so small. So, <laughs> so when someone comes to see Quartetto Nuevo, what will they experience that is distinct from other quartet performances? So one thing we always struggle with is describing what you're going to hear. And the easiest thing is to say, you know, just come check it out because you're going to love it. <laughs> but what you'll hear is one is you're going to hear this extreme range of music where you're going to hear uh, things that are like you mentioned that Appalachia waltz that are beautiful and and lyrical and that kind of thing and then you're going to hear some some pieces that are just cranking away where it's just your high energy and that kind of thing and so the the things we always hear about the ensemble that people get very excited about is number one is visually how much fun we look like we're having and we are um we this is our passion project and you know we all leave our freelance careers in la to go on the road and do these tours because this is what we really really enjoy doing and so that sort of joy in playing really comes across from the stage you'll you'll see it's it's not a stuffy um, chamber music concert by any means you'll see us having fun and smiling and laughing and we love interacting with the audience um, and then the second thing you'll notice is that the um the ensemble or how how we play together uh, is extremely tight and we do some pieces that are, are pretty pretty technical and they come across in such a way that it's uh you know they almost seem effortless and that kind of thing so uh it's just sort of a high level of of music making but it's by no means um out of reach of anybody it's all very accessible um you know to the audiences and that kind of thing the audience and you show them uh, the instruments that you have and you talk about the instruments and answer any questions. I mean, that even adds to the accessibility. So that's amazing. We actually make a point to come out during intermission to come say hi to everybody and, and talk. And of course, you know, we're peddling our CDs and t-shirts and those kind of things, but we love talking to folks and getting pictures taken and, and uh, all four of us are out there. So if someone has a question about the guitar, they can, you know, talk to Kenton and get the insight on the guitar. Or if they have a question about Felipe's percussion, they can find the answers they need or, or that kind of thing. So we come at an intermission after the show and we, we love talking to people and, and, and sharing our music. Saxophonist and flutist Damon Zick of the band Quarteto Nuevo, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. The band will perform at both Aurora Theater in Lawrenceville and the Strand Theater in the Marietta Square this Saturday, November 5th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the story behind 
the historically radical Black Mountain College, explored in iDrum's new documentary exhibition. But first, we invite you to join us for WABE series Sounds Like ATL tomorrow night on 90.1, featuring music of Cleveland P. Jones, Algebra Blessed, Masuki Scales, and the Common Ground Collective. That sounds like ATL tomorrow at 8 p.m. on 90.1. And at 11 p.m. you can watch the show on WABE-TV. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Black Mountain College was a pioneering art institution in North Carolina, known for its avant-garde experimentation in art, music, dance, and design. The college opened in 1933, and closed in 1957, yet its short lifespan made a lasting impact on education and art. The school's remarkable history is explored in the documentary exhibition Idea Plus Place, advancing the legacy of Black Mountain College, on view now at Idrum Art Gallery. Recently, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes discussed the new exhibition with curator Alice Sebrell, along with the executive director of Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center, Jeff Arnall, and iDrum co-founder Will Lawless. Arnall began with a brief history of the school. Black Mountain College was an extraordinary place with an extraordinary cast of characters. And, you know, between 33 and 1957, you had 24 years where it has a lasting impact in arts and culture in the 20th and 21st century. The founders really believed in their responsibility to shape a resilient and inclusive society, you know, with democratic governance, communal living, experiential learning, with a focus on the arts. I think another thing to point out, too, is really from the very beginning, the connection to the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus, Hitler was rising to power in the early 30s. By 33, he had closed the Bauhaus. And at that moment, Joseph and Annie Albers, Joseph Albers accepted a teaching position at Black Mountain College. I think that the idea of a search for innovation, an allowance, or kind of this idea of experimentation kind of is a running theme throughout those 24 years. And again and again, we see that coming up in creative writing and visual arts and performance. So experimentation and the idea of, uh, I think, really this non-hierarchical kind of uh, community, experiment and community, um, kind of this real hope or strive for democracy is all part of it. Yeah. Why do you think an institution like this has yet to be replicated? We are contacted every day from folks all around the world that are excited about Black Mountain College. And they're actually attempting in their own way to maybe not replicate it, but 
definitely work in the spirit of Black Mountain College. Mm. And what do you accomplish at the Museum and Art Center? And when did that come into existence? The museum was founded in 1993. And we actually, with uh, five folks on staff, we do a lot of different kinds of work. We really look to Black Mountain College for a blueprint, you know, as far as like what we do, as far as our public programs, our exhibitions, our publications. Um, We really exist to preserve the history of Black Mountain College, but also support artists and curators who carry, whose work carries on the legacy, the multidisciplinary innovations of Black Mountain College. So that in itself is we connect ourselves to contemporary art, dance, theater, music, performance, and lots of other things. That's fantastic. And speaking of curating, Alice, when it came to curating this exhibit, what was the process like gathering all of the elements needed to tell this story? So we knew we wanted to do a history show and we didn't have unlimited space to do it in. So the idea of looking at the history of Black Mountain College through the various places that inform that history, that was kind of the kernel of the of the idea. Yeah. So the show contains glimpses of the challenges that the school experienced along the way. And one of my favorite stories involves a visit from the FBI. Would you share the story behind this visit and why the FBI thought the school posed a threat to what it called internal security? (laughs) Well, at that time period in the 1950s, McCarthy was looking under every rock and inside every crevice for places that harbored radical ideas. And Black Mountain College was on the radar because it was different and it was radical in its own way. So they paid a visit to a student, Jonathan Williams. He was uh, not at the college at that time, but he was nearby in Highlands, North Carolina at his family home. And they were just poking around, asking him questions, trying to find evidence of behavior that might be deemed unsuitable. Mm. So of the pieces that are on display at the IDRAM exhibition, are they all digital reprints of art that was originally there? Or do you have any original pieces on display? Oh, there definitely are original pieces, artwork, ephemera. There's a syllabus that Joe Fiore typed up for his painting class, and that's an original. So there's original artwork, original photographs, as well as digital images. Will you tell me about one of your favorite pieces of original artwork that's in the show? Oh, gosh. I really love, there's a collage that a student named Jacqueline Gorevich did, and it's a collage showing the studies building, which was the primary, one of the two primary buildings at the second campus at Lake Eden. And she goes through, so you see pictures of the studies building, but then through, this is looking back decades between when she created this collage and when she was at Black Mountain, which was 1950. She looks back and remembers every other student and their particular study, every student had an individual study within the studies building, and she can name the location of every other student 
at Black Mountain that summer of 1950. And I just find that remarkable. That is remarkable, as were so many of the people that attended and were on faculty there, including the eccentric inventor and designer Buckminster Fuller. He was on faculty at Black Mountain for a period of time. Is it true that this is where he made his first attempt to construct a geodesic dome? So in 1948, he came and and his goal was with the college community to create a large scale version, his first large scale version of a dome. So that is true. He had created scale models, but never a large one. And so that that is true. It wasn't successful. Um, The next summer he came back and with students did create a successful large scale dome. Wow. What an amazingly storied institution. Will, welcome. Why did IDRAM choose to host this exhibit? A couple of reasons. I, I learned from Jeff that he had actually, he, he's a, a drummer in his own right and has actually performed at every physical location that iDrum has been in. Well, we need to talk about the history of iDrum. We'll get to that in a second. Why else did you want to bring this exhibit to iDrum? I felt it was important to tell this story because there's so many people, academics, artists, and the like that still do not know the story or the history of Black Mountain College. And I think it's an important part of of arts in the South and giving people permission to research it, to learn from it, and, and to further their own practice based on the history of what happened there over those 24 years. For the unfamiliar, Will, will you share some of iDrum's history and the path that it took for you to get to your relatively new space on Ralph David Abernathy? Sure. We're a 24-year-old organization started in August of 1998 after Marshall Avett and Woody Cornwell started the Silver Ceiling two doors down at 248 Trinity. We opened up and were there on Trinity for three years as we grew our capacity. We realized we needed more space and we moved to the mattress factory on MLK and were there for 10 years and then we went, did remote programming for two to three years and then ended up on Forsyth Street for four years. And then I was asked to come in and produce the 20th anniversary party in January of 18. And within a month, all the arts organizations in South Downtown on Broad and Forsyth Street were asked to leave. So we spent a, we did the anniversary party, spent a couple of years looking for a new home. And then we signed our letter of intent in March of 2020, and we know what happened then. We uh, just celebrated our first year of programming in our new location at 515 Ralph David Abernathy in the West End. We're about two miles west of the old Brave Stadium, about a mile east of the West End Marta Station. And so what's next for iDrum? What type of programming can people expect? We initially started so we could have Local artists and musicians have a place to perform and show their work, as well as a place for national and international artists and musicians to come and present their work as well. Going forward with this new iteration of iDrum, we're going almost meta, if you will, in that we are working on creating connections and collaborations. This past year, we also, rather than curating the art, we brought in 
artists and curators to curate the shows themselves and to give them the opportunity to expand their practice. Going into this next year in 2023, we're looking to explore additional opportunities for artists and musicians here in Atlanta by potentially going to Mexico City and starting a cultural exchange with artists, filmmakers, musicians, and writers from Mexico City and Atlanta. And then we're also discussing working with arts organizations and artists from West Africa and parts of Africa, as well as arts organizations here in the, in the Southeast. We're trying to do what we've always done in creating these opportunities, but being a little bit more forward thinking as to what these opportunities can be. Very cool. Well, to wrap up for each of you, how do you think attending Black Mountain College for you personally might have changed your life or opportunities that you had? It's hard to say exactly to speculate, but I think I've just talked to so many alumni and almost to a person, their time at Black Mountain College changed the trajectory of their life. And I think that being given so much freedom to think and to experiment, to write, to paint, to study, just showed them the possibilities in life and kept the door open. So I think it would have opened my doors, but what that would have led to, I I could not say. Who could say? Jeff, what about you? So I love that, what Alice just said, but I also think that you know, I've spent, uh, I grew up outside of Atlanta, but I spent a lot of time of my time as a young person in the Northeast and cities. And I think that it would have been amazing to actually work on the farm at the college and to have that experience of not only being with the land on that way, but trying to kind of figure out how to have a sustainable living in that way and how that would inform what comes next or what, uh, you know, would be in the future. I think as an artist or as a uh, arts administrator, that that could be something really interesting as well. Yeah, no doubt. And Will, have you ever had this fantasy play out in your head? Well, I think the obvious answer is that's why myself and the other founders started iDrum. You know, there's a sociogram. So it shows how Black Mountain College influenced all the other arts organizations and the happenings and the fluxus movements and the beats. And I think you can take all of that and somewhere down the line is iDrum. iDrum's always been about being experimental and being on the avant-garde, but but we come from a place of knowing that people did this before us and we're not trying to work in a vacuum. iDrum co-founder Will Lawless speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. They were joined by curator Alice Sebrell and Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center director Jeff Arnall. Idea Plus Place, Advancing the Legacy of Black Mountain College, is on view at iDrum through November 12th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Sonia Nakoda Staples 
the founders of Staples in Tents, share the story behind their outdoor and overlanding company. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with Art Smith, the project manager of Gay Barchives, you can catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.